come over and grab this to make life a little bit, that's right, makes life a little bit easier. There we go. Cool. I'm going to sit on a stool because it feels like appropriate today and that's what all the cool pastors do so that's what I aspire to be, right? <laughs> Did you say Gav never sat on a stool? Yeah, he's not cool. Got rid of him. Um, <laughs> cool, thank you so much for that. Um, love me some Puritan prayers. Um, so I want to talk today a little bit um, about um, preparation and processing, which I think is something that's been a little bit lost. And, and where I want to start is, um, weirdly enough, with war. Now, um, when we think of war, there's, I think there's some, in Australia particularly, there's some words that kind of come to our head over and over, and it's like things like mateship and hardness and Aussie spirit. And, and probably one of the, the biggest ones I think that we hear very often, especially around sort of Anzac time in those times, is um, sacrifice. And we hear so often about these um, stories of great sacrifice and of soldiers giving up um, everything, you know, to go and fight and die of a land they've never heard of. And, and no matter where you kind of sit on war, um, or, or the, you know, if, there's, if you see problems with this kind of imagery or glorifying the sacrifice considering they were children, all these sorts of stuff, I think what's um, really important is that you recognise on an individual level these, these were young boys that made a huge sacrifice. From my <laughs> extremely comfortable life, um, where my biggest daily problem is probably choosing what to have for lunch, um, I can only imagine the mental strain that would have had um, on those young boys, the, the hardship that they endured and the physical toll um, and the mental toll that was um, placed on them at just such a young age. And I think today um, in Australia we kind of still recognise those same traits, um, so like mateship and Aussie spirit and so on. Um, it's something that's really ingrained into the kind of Australian societal brand. Um, but in the last decade, I think the conversation has started to, to move a little bit from what it was. And in Australia, we still kind of honour that, that narrative of sacrifice and mateship, but we've seen something new, something new emerge. Um, and, and mental health is talked about um, probably in the last five, 10 to 5 years more than it ever has been, um, especially when we're talking about conflict and returned soldiers. Now, obviously this is nothing new. I mean, we, we've known about the effects of war for a long time. Um, it brings up phrases like, you know, the old phrase of like shell-shocked or um, having a problem with their nerves. But I think the conversation itself has actually changed slightly. I remember hearing a story um, that was contrasting the two of our major conflicts in the world, the first being World War II and the second being Vietnam. Um, and I think in these, way, in, in these wars, in some way, represent two very different um, images of what a soldier is. Um, but there's one element particularly that I think gets overlooked quite regularly. See, the vets had two considerably different means of travel to war. The Anzacs from World War II had kind of weeks to months of travel before arriving to battle and coming home. Um, during these long trips, sometimes over the course of six months with multiple stopovers and those sorts of things, they likely had time to think about what they were actually moving towards, what was to come, to prepare themselves and, and give time to their fear and anxieties. On the way home, they had a chance to sit and, and try and comprehend what they had been through, process their emotions, um, and come to terms with the horrific reality that they had just experienced. And um, I think can be able to sit together um, 
and talk about that experience together and what they had been through physically and mentally and kind of lament together an environment. Um, you can imagine this ship where, where everyone was kind of on the same page. If we jump forward now to the Vietnam War, suddenly we have troops who are on Australian soil one day and they're in war the next. There's no time to prepare. There's no time ref to reflect. This is kind of boots on the ground in 10, fast-paced, scary action. And I think this had some serious effects on the well-being of the soldiers that went to the Vietnam War, which is still being felt today. Um, there's actually a name for this, uh, this act of being able to come to grips with the effects of war. And, and for the military, it's a term called decompression. Now, decompression in a general sense can be defined as either um, a release from compression or a gradual reduction in pressure. The military version, it's about the process that allows soldiers to return home in a kind of graduated way, uh, a time for them to come back to a baseline and be able to function in everyday life. Uh, Major Marie Riley, an officer who's been involved in the Australian Defence Force um, use, use of decompression tool, notes that um, there's actually a second definition of it and a so-called third location, they call it, a third location decompression. Um, this refers to a time in a location that is neither operational theatre nor home um, for rest, returning of equipment, reintegration before finally returning home. Um, and this decompression time has been noted as a key way that soldiers are able to cope and find themselves kind of coming back into normal day life, um, a way to bring them back into a place where they can operate in society at a, at a fairly normal level. And I kind of love this idea of the third location. And I actually think there's some wisdom in scripture about this. I think Jesus was way ahead of his time when we talk about this third um, location decompression. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. So why am I talking about war? Um, I'm assuming most of us here haven't fought in a major um, conflict. Um, I hope. <laughs> um, and it kind of just seems strange that I would bring that up. But I think there's some relevance for us. Now, while we aren't moving from war to life... I think we are facing constant pressures. Now, I don't want to compare the two. I don't think that's fair. Um, but what I think is important is to note the concept of preparing and processing for whatever you do. I think for most of us, this idea of preparation and processing probably seems a little bit foreign when it just comes to our day-to-day -day life. As an example, how, long, uh, how often have you been in a conversation with someone and you say, you know, how are you doing, blah, 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 the kind of... Um, pleasantries, and that, yeah, you say, how are you? And the person says, I'm good, but what would be the response? Busy. Everyone says it. I hear it about 50 times a day. And while there's a whole other sermon I could do on that, I kind of get it as well. I found myself um, recently in a new job, I've started saying it uh, about three times a day, and I kind of catch myself back, you know, why am I saying that I'm busy? Well, I am, but you know what I'm saying. Um, I moved from morning routine to work to home with the family um, to personal admin to study and then finally bed to start all over again the next day. Um, I feel hurried through everything in order to make sure that I'm achieving enough to make sure that I'm earning my worth which is something that I think we would be familiar with and again that's a whole other sermon I could do. Um, it's even been coined hurry sickness by cardiologists Maya Friedman and Ray Rosenman. So it's, it, it's a real problem within society. And, and this could be anything, whatever it is with you. Um, I bet um, that you often move from event to event, from work to work, or insert whatever your thing is to the next thing. It can be exhausting. And these aren't necessarily bad things. I mean, it's like kids' birthdays, it's spending time at dinner, it's ministry. I mean, these are all really good things. 
But all stuffed together, this can become to overwhelm us a little bit. We, we can suffer the all too common burnout, which is a phrase that we all understand and know now, um, and has become a reality rather than a rarity. Uh, and where the real issue lies in this busyness or hurried life is that we don't have time to prepare or process. We aren't in a position to make good decisions. If we have trauma, there isn't time to address it. And we don't leave space to process what we were going through. And that's even if we've got time to even address the fact that we have the trauma. Um, we don't have time to prepare ourselves for all the serious events and decisions that we have coming in life. For me personally, um, this comes out best as withdrawing or retreating socially and mentally. And at worst, as aggression to those around me and I love. Without a space to pro prepare and process, I actually become a very average person of myself, someone that I don't want to be. Have a think, you know, what does it for you? Like, how do you feel at the end of a long week when you've been doing all sorts of stuff and about to jump right back into it? Like, it's, it's tough. Like, you get to the end of a long week and you kind of just feel at the end of your, um, <laughs> the end of what you're doing. There is a vision in the Bible that lays out another option, though. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And it's not another strategy meeting. It's not another intensive where you've got to work harder. It's not a shaming exercise to tell us how we aren't doing enough. It's actually a radical model of doing the, almost the exact opposite of what society believes is best in the name of efficiency. Now, there are three stories within the Gospels that I think are going to help us figure this out. And, and they're stories from Jesus. And I think really for us as Christians, Jesus is our benchmark. He is our example of how to live a life. And so I want to look at those and figure out how they can help us handle these situations in life, help us prepare and process, um, and even get through things like trauma. So the first story is when Jesus chose the disciples. Now, this is obviously a, a, a pretty major decision um, in the life of, uh, of Jesus and the ministry that was to come, and a really important one. So it's in, uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me, otherwise just listen along. It's from Luke 6, um, verses 12 to 16. It's Luke 6, 12 to 16. So verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus was, I think, the perfect example of an unhurried life. He lived in this rhythm that allowed him to make the best decisions at the right time. Now, just prior to this story, he was actually had a big confrontation with the Jewish leaders. He, um, it was on Sabbath, and he healed a man, and you know there became this big controversy, and he kind of talked about it. And so after this, which would have been a really pivotal moment in the temple, he actually takes time to get away and pray. Um, another way of putting it would be to be with his father, to draw close to God, um, his source of deep, true rest. And so Jesus is choosing his 12, and this is a fairly big moment. And, and these disciples would eat and sleep and drink with Jesus 24-7. Um, they would be the possibles, uh, or in Greek, one who is sent off to go and spread the good news. I mean, this is a really big deal. But Jesus doesn't head back home and begin jotting down like the pros and cons list. He doesn't lay out their Enneagrams and make sure that he's got like the right balance of activators and futurists or strategic planners, whatever. He doesn't even sleep. He goes out to the mountainside to a solitary place and he prays all night. 
let's just think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, is showing us a rhythm here, a monumental decision. This is, this is huge. And he's up all night praying, drawing close to his Father in wisdom, clarity and preparedness for what he's about to embark on. So I guess the first lesson for us here is when we're coming to major decisions or even something big in our life is that solitary prayer is actually a powerful tool for us. Um, No distractions in biting in God can allow us to make the right decisions based on God's will. All right, so second story. Um, This is Jesus' rhythm of action and rest, which I think is, again, something that we need to sort of take hold of in our life of moving about. Um, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, we know the power he has and the miracle he's done, yet in this story, we see this rhythm, and it seems very, like, human, I guess would be the best word for it. I I think this is exactly what's trying to be shown to us, and what we need to take away, and how we can actually use this in our lives. So, in Mark 1, we see a few stories linked together by rhythm, and the the first is of Jesus healing many. So it starts in Mark 1, um, verse 33 says, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he, who would, not let the demons, uh, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So that's a pretty big event. Uh, it kind of just casually jots through, but he's like healing many. He's driving out demons. This would have been like pretty full-on stuff to be happening. Um, and I think this would have like kind of done the rounds. I know Jesus has said, you know, don't tell anyone, but as we read in the Bible, pretty much everyone goes and tells everyone anyway. And so for me, um, for those that don't know, I've got a, a marketing background. I'm like, great. Like, this is the perfect opportunity. The word's spreading around. He's doing this amazing event. This is a great time to like continue the hype and go on to like bigger and better ministries, probably have some like cool lights or something, smoke machines, and it's going to be amazing. Um, and this is like, this is it. This is, the gospel is going to come to the world through this. But we'd read what happens next, and it's very, very different. And I think it's kind of, yeah, funny that my mind goes there, and Jesus is like, no. So in verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus is missing in action. I mean, even the disciples agree with me. They're like, this is it. This is the time. But Jesus is away. No one can find him. He's gone to a solitary place to pray. And I mean, this doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Like, surely the disciples were even pretty confused. I think we're eating it. We're pretty confused. Why wouldn't Jesus just keep going? But I think this is what's really important. I think Jesus gets it. For him, it's this rhythm that's so important that he will literally just bail on everyone to go spend time with God in prayer. And we see this rhythm. It's repeated multiple times throughout the Gospels, this work and rest, work and rest, work and rest. And funnily enough, I think that rhythm exists throughout the whole Bible, um, particularly in Genesis. So I guess the second lesson for us to pull from this is that it's important to take time of rest after events and realign with God, process and prepare for whatever is next. Instead of rushing to the next thing, as we so often do, we can actually just take time in a solitary place. And, and I get that it's hard. Like, I've got two children, as you saw before. I get how hard it can be to take that time. But I, I promise you, if you make it a priority, you will actually be able to do it. It's just about getting it in there. Okay, so final story from um, the life of Jesus. But this one's actually slightly different, and it's Really funny, while I was preparing for this, um, I was looking for a third story that would just kind of reiterate what I was saying over and over again and make me seem really smart. Um, And God had very different ideas, and I couldn't find a third story that just showed Jesus perfectly resting. 
And I was kind of sitting there, and I was like, why can't I find this? This is ridiculous. I, just, I know that it's in here, and it just couldn't find it. But the story I kept coming back to and kept coming back to is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so it, it, this, for me, actually brings out a different side of this story. And it's one where we are pulled away from being able to spend time abiding perfectly and being able to sit down and process. But I think there's actually something in there for us as well. So... Um, thanks God for that one. Um, it comes from Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. Um, Jesus has just learned that John the Baptist has been beheaded, so his own family has been killed in a pretty gruesome way. Um, in amongst all that Jesus is doing, all the work that he's doing, he gets given this horrible news, the disciples come and deliver it to him. So, verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, talking about John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So we hear that again, that rhythm. He understands that he wants to process it and get away. However, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them and healed their sick. So I think this presents a real-life situation for many of us. Um, And I think that's maybe why this needs to be included, because Jesus needed to grieve. I mean, he would have been really upset by this. And we know Jesus was fully human and fully God, and so he had that element to him that would have been, you know, absolutely devastated. And and he wanted to get away. You can see he was trying to get away to a solitary place. And, And I think in ministry or life... That's what it can be like for us is that we, we kind of know that we need to go do this thing and we need to be with God, but there's this thing to do or there's that thing to do. And while there are times where I think we do need to actually say, no, I need to do this, there are other times in life when we're going to need to move on and be able to move on to something else. But what's really important here is that Jesus actually had to go beyond himself and serve others. So I want to be really clear, this isn't this isn't a story about putting your needs last and serving everyone else because I think what that leads to is burnout. And we don't want that. And I think that's a very common story. And I don't think that's what Jesus is advocating for. We read that he was intentional about his withdrawing to a solitary place. And we aren't, we aren't necessarily given a timeline of how long it took. I mean, it said people went on foot, so I assume it would have taken them a little while. He was on a boat, they were on a foot. You know, they sailed pretty fast, I assume. Um, we aren't really given that detail. And so likely Jesus had a bit of time to process and think about what had happened. Um, But what's funny is he then went on to perform one of his greatest and well-known miracles, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And I think what this story indicates, at least for me, and I hope I'm not alone in this, is that even in our times of grief and processing, which are important, there's also opportunities for us to live out the gospel. Jesus had compassion, and even in his grief, which would have been deep, that really deep, gut-wrenching grief, Uh, grief because it was his family, he actually chose to turn outward to his community and had compassion on people and turned that situation into an amalgamation of the gospel of bringing about the kingdom to people. You know, it would have been incredible and is well known today. So for us, even in our grief, we know that we can rely and lean on God and have compassion on those around us and even potentially knowing that we can use whatever our situation is to help spread the gospel and help others. Now, these are only three examples, and I could have gone on for longer, but I think we get the gist. The Bible's littered with these examples of Jesus praying in solitude, um, pushing constantly closer into a relationship with God, and for us, we need to heed that example. We need to learn this rhythm if we are to survive a world which is ever increasingly getting busier and busier and faster and faster. 
And I think for us, this is where we actually stand out differently as a culture. You know, we were called as Christians to be different. And I think this rhythm is so countercultural to what the world tells us we need to do, is that this is how we can actually be different. We can be that non-anxious presence. Um, we can be, um, you know, a slow, dawdling pace amongst a frantic um, sprint of the world. I think that's really important. Jesus shows us that we need to rest and prepare and process with everything in life, and this starts with the simple act of spending time with the Father. So my encouragement and my practice for you for the week is to be intentional about your time, both in preparing and processing. Um, I'm not sure what you've got coming up. You might have really big decisions. You might have normal day-to-day decisions like me, choosing what is for lunch, but I'm not advocating for prayer for what you're going to have for lunch. You can probably make that decision on your own. But um, think about the things that you've got coming up in life, whether it be this week, this month, or this year. And I encourage you to actually be really intentional about your time with Jesus. Be in preparation for what's coming and be processing what's happened. If there's something that happens to you during the week, I encourage you to get up a little bit earlier. Get up half an hour earlier and just spend some time in quiet. Don't even need to pray for anything, just try and abide, even if it's five minutes, just kind of spend your time in silence and solitude and kind of let yourself be with God and and let that time of preparing and processing um, encourage you and empower you for the week and really, I guess, reorientate you towards God, which I think is really important. And then what I want you to do is actually see the effect this has on your life. When you go to bed at night, um, there's a a thing called the prayer of examine, which I try and do. Google it, you'll learn all about it. I think it's a Jesuit thing. Um, But it's a time to actually sit and process, but also see what God's done. And so if we see this rhythm of preparing and processing, we might actually start to see where God is moving in our lives and and how powerful will that be? Because I don't think the stories that we've read today are an accident. I think if the Son of God needs time to rest, to prepare and to process, then so do we. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think there's almost nothing more important than that. So um, I encourage you this week, really take that time, really be intentional. Yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wisdom that you give us. We know that Jesus was just the perfect example of how to live a life, and I pray that um, we can do as he says, we can take his yoke, which is, which is easy, and, and live off his examples discipling under Jesus and allowing his rhythms, his way of living to not only be, you know, something that we hear about and we think that sounds nice, but to actually invade our lives and to um, allow us to change the way that we are and, and who we are, constantly looking to Jesus as an example of how to live a best life. And let that be a life that isn't just something that enables us um, to live better, but actually seeps out to other people. It, it makes us different. It makes people ask questions. I pray that we'd have that opportunity that people would see that in us and they would ask those questions, that we have the, the courage and the words to proclaim the good news and explain why we're different, why I'm not going to that meeting or why I'm not going to go to that lunch, That why I get up so early to pray, Lord. I just pray that that would be something that we can hold dear to us and that it just really enable us to spread your word because that's what we're here to do is make disciples, Lord. I pray for everyone moving forward in this week that during their time of intentionality, during their time of rest in you, that you would speak to them powerfully, that you would let your spirit be felt on them and that they would be able to come out of that time just knowing that 
this is what we need to do. We need to abide in you, Lord. And, and I pray that moving forward with whatever decisions people have to make or whatever events people have coming up that they need to process from, that you will have your hand on them, that your peace will be there and your wisdom will be them. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.